Well, good evening to everyone. It's been a couple months since I've been here. I'm very thankful to be with you all this evening. Um, before I begin, I just want to point out something very obvious. Lake Street Church of Christ, the church at Lake Street, that is who you all are. That is who you associate yourself with. Like I am at the church at Overland, Overland Church of Christ, and my parents are at Fayette Church of Christ, we are all each a part of an individual body. In your all's cases, you are part of the Lake Street Church of Christ. If you have been baptized for the remission of your sins and discussed with the group here to be a member here, you are a part of this local group. And that's a very serious thing for us to understand. It's nothing we can take lightly. And in fact, it's nothing that Jesus took lightly in regards to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And I think the book of Revelation is often something we try and stay away from. It's kind of scary. It doesn't make much sense at times. So we're going to talk about these seven churches of Asia. And if you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. If you have them with you, turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Um, that's where we're going to be spending. The majority of the lesson is, is in, is in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But we're going to start in chapter 1 in just a moment. But, you know, I think it's very important that we understand that we have a lot to learn from the book of Revelation. Uh, it's actually described as apocalyptic writing style, and that means it's, in, it's things to come, and the language is oftentimes in code of some kind. This uh, is specifically called out. It says this book is written in signs and symbols. But this book is addressed to the, uh, to the uh, seven churches of Asia because the Roman government is going to be coming down on them in such a way that they're going to face persecution and even death because of their beliefs. And these are the things that Jesus wanted the churches there to know. But what's also important for us to notice is that each church has its own personality. I've been, luckily and fortunate enough, to be in over 15 different congregations in the last four months. Maybe even more than that. None of them are the same. All different people, obviously, all different personalities. And it's the same way with these seven churches of Asia. And we have a lot to learn from that. Um, and we have to make sure we look into God's word to see what Jesus, we have to remember this is Jesus' words to these churches on the things they need to work on. So therefore, of these seven churches and these seven different personalities, it's safe to assume we can find our local congregation in one of these. And it's important as members of a local church, I have Overland Church of Christ and here at Lake Street, that as we go through these seven churches, we look and try and find ourselves. That way we can continue to grow. And I say that for one reason. Of these seven churches, there's one thing we can take away. We'll get to the map in just a second. The church are people, and people have problems, right? There's no getting away from that. Sid Latham, when he started preaching at Fayette Church of Christ, I think that was one of the first sermons he preached. Just common sense. We all have our own problems, and it's no surprise that those get rolled over into the church. But I think just saying that and not dressing the root of the problem and asking the question, what will we do to fix those problems is what we ought to do. So by going through these seven churches of Asia, I hope we can see not only ourselves, but our local group as we go through these. But before we do that as well, go ahead and read with me Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Pause right there. One thing that we also have to keep in mind as we go through this, the time is near. This is the kind of language he's using, saying, it's going to get tough. It's going to be hard for you all. You all are going to face persecution. Jump down to verse 8. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony. So the island of Patmos, as you can see behind me, is located on that black dot. That is where John was being inspired by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ to write to these seven churches of Asia. And it's a very encouraging thing to know. Last time I was here, a couple months ago, I spoke on 2 John, the second epistle of John. This is the same John that is authoring the book of Revelation. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also uh, the Gospel of John. This is the same guy. But ultimately, we cannot get away from the fact that it is Jesus. These are the words of Jesus to these uh, brethren here at these seven churches. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. We know that Ephesus was located in the western part of Asia. Um, so this would mean two things. It was a port, number one, it was a port city. And being a port city, there are two big things that would come into the church. Number one would be religion. Religion would be coming in and out, in and out, and in and out because of the second thing that's coming through the port cities is commercial trade. Because of those two things, Ephesians, the, the Ephesus brethren, uh, had a lot of things coming in and out that they had to put up with. And uh, this was the same group that Paul spent two or three years with and labored night and day with on his third journey. Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. He says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul had a special love for these brethren. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Of course, this is coming from the book of Timothy that Paul the Apostle wrote to the young evangelist Timothy not once, but twice he wrote to Timothy to stay in Ephesus to put up with false teachers. So of these seven churches, Ephesus is the, probably one of the ones that's been along the, round, uh, the most, and we have more evidence to go back from, to the book of Acts and refer to the church at Ephesus. And it's a very interesting group. At this time, by the time John was able to write to them, more than likely, this church was in its second or third generation of Christians. Well, hang on to that thought for just a second and jump with me in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. So the first thing I want to notice is from verse 1. Keep this thought on your back of the head as we go through Ephesians. Ephesus was one of the first cities that had lamps in the streets that were lit up as you walked down the cities. Hold on to that thought for just a second. And let's take some practical examples from verses 2 and 3. Number one, the recognition of apostate teaching. The Ephesus brethren here had a recognition of apostate teaching when it would come into the church. And they understood the truth well enough that they knew when a false teacher was in their midst. And this can only come from studying the truth. I don't know if any of you all have met any of the U.S. money changers, but one of the things they do in their training, they don't come up and they, have, they don't have to study all the counterfeit bills. What they got to do is study the actual $100 bill, their actual $5 bill. That way, if any counterfeit bill comes in, they know exactly that, or they know that it's not the real bill, and they throw it out. 
Well, it's the same thing in regards to us in the teaching. We have to know the word well enough that way when apostate or false teaching comes in, we're able to throw it out. And that's only going to come through studying the Bible and learning more about it. And we have to understand that. And uh, as members of the Lord's body, we're called to know the Bible that well. And I don't know if uh, this congregation here or, or even in the past or if you've ever been at a congregation that's had to deal with false teachers. It's very wearisome. It's very tiring. With that thought in mind, it makes sense what he says in verse 3. He says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. So even through all of these, this church having to put up with these false teachers over and over again, they were able to persevere and get through it. And that's, that's a, a huge thing that they were to persevere. Uh, it's my understanding this morning, Kyle talked a, a little bit about being wearisome and things like that. I also preached a sermon not that long ago from Judges chapter 8, verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, after they got done defeating the Midianites, it says they were so tired, and, and in Judges 8, verse 4, it says they were weary, yet pursuing. Whereas the King James Version says they were faint, yet pursuing. That idea that they were tired, but they were going to keep on going. And that's kind of the idea here, that regardless of these false teachers, the Ephesus brethren keep on going, or kept on going. The second thing we can notice from the church of Ephesus is in verses 4 through 5. Read with me chapter 2, 4 through 5. He says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember that thought I asked you all to hold on to, the fact that they were one of the first ones to have the lampstands in the, in the streets? It's not coincidental that Jesus was bringing that up. He's actually going to take their light away from him. And they know what that means to have their lampstands removed from them and how they wouldn't like that. But notice in verse 4, the fact that they left their first love. In verses 1 through 3, we see that he gives them seven commendations, but they still have left their first love. And the first love here could mean a number of things, but I, I think the best way to describe what it means by leaving their first love as we established earlier, the church at Ephesus was probably in its second or third generation of Christians. Meaning by the time Jesus is getting to write to these people, if they have left their first love, then in fact that means when the first generation of Christians were there, they had a zeal and a fire to serve God, but maybe their children don't have the same fire and zeal. I don't know if that hit home, hits home for some of us. I think it might for some of us. The fact that you couldn't exactly push your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and, and how sad that might be, and that might be what it's talking about here. But I don't know if anyone here also has ever had the opportunity to start a new work. Um, I don't know how long this church has been here. I know it's been quite a few years. My dad was a boy when he went here. And, uh, but I would say when this church here was first started, there was a certain amount of zeal and a certain amount of passion that came with starting a new work. Everyone's working hard to get people to come and, and things like that. But they have left that first love, the Ephesian brethren have. And he doesn't just leave them there. He tells them what they need to do. He tells them that they need to do the deeds they did at first. In, chapter, in, in verse 5, Therefore remember where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first. What were the things you were doing whenever you were first a Christian, whenever you were first baptized? Were you going out of your way to talk to others about Christ? Maybe you were going out of your way to stay away from uh, certain sins that you know that you would fall into. Whatever that may be, are you doing those deeds you did at first? Go back to those deeds. And I believe this is also that idea at the end where it says, uh, he, he talks about removing that lampstand unless you repent. 
he goes back to that idea of leaving their first love. Paul writes to the Galatian brethren, or in, Galatia, in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, he says to them, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. But he says he is amazed at how quickly they have deserted the work there and how sad that truly is. And the Ephesian brethren uh, truly um, needed to get back on the right path. They needed to repent like uh, Jesus was was admonishing them to. And this is just a picture of the ruins of Ephesus. For each church, I'm going to show you all the ruins of it. Each one of these towns was leveled, like Jesus said they would be, because of the Roman government. This is just the church at Ephesus eventually. The next church we get to is Smyrna in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Smyrna was located about 30 30 to 40 miles north of Ephesus. As you can see, we're working our way around in a circle. And this is the only mention of this church in the New Testament. It's actually a very interesting church because we know that this one in particular uh, didn't have anything wrong with it necessarily that Jesus specifically called out. And there are two things we can learn from this church that I want us to take note of. First one is from verse 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I think the biggest thing we could take away from that is that they were poor, yet they understood they were rich. Of course, they're not talking about money. Uh, They are with the poor part, but they're rich through Christ. I'm not a rich man, nor will I probably ever be on this earth, but I do know I'm rich through Christ who strengthens me, through Christ that wakes me up every day and has me alive to serve Him. I think about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. We won't take the time to turn over there, but one thing they both have in common, not only the rich man, but also Lazarus, and it's very interesting, the language there, is that they both die doesn't say how they died. They just both died. doesn't matter how much money you have on this earth. You, they both died the same death, but it was in the afterlife that Jesus was trying to make the point of this story. And it's very interesting that although we, we can all sit around here in church and talk about, oh, well, money's not all that important to me, but sometimes it is the driving cause for everything that we do. We have to be careful of that. But my point in all this is that although they were poor, they understood they were rich. We see that as we read down through here, uh, that, that back in, uh, with the Lazarus and the rich man, that they both died the same death. But being poor on this earth or even being rich doesn't matter to the Lord. Um, we, ha- we can rejoice in, in the fact that wealth comes when we are children of God. That's what we're rich in. And we have comfort to know that no matter how awful this world may be and treat us, we have the Lord watching out for us. And we have a group of Christians that encourage us. We can come to this group and this assembly on Sundays and Wednesdays or whenever and have our fellow brethren encouraging us. That's how we're rich. Uh, You can take the richest man out there in this world, and if he doesn't have Christ, and if he doesn't have brethren surrounding him, he's not truly happy. I can tell you that right now. He's not truly happy. That's not where true happiness comes from. We have a home prepared for us in heaven, and that's why we are rich. And that's why the Christians in Smyrna were rich. But the second thing I want us to notice is in verse 10. Please read with me there in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. 
think it's very interesting here that he says that they will suffer. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It doesn't say they're not going to. It's set in stone at this point. It's going to happen. But the encouragement that he gives them is to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, a crown represents something. I think in our head, a lot of times, we try and associate it with uh, maybe a king or a queen or someone like that, someone of royalty. But I think more so than anything, a crown represents leadership. It represents hard work and determination. And if we're going to receive that crown of life after this life, it's because we were faithful unto death. And there's comfort to know that we can receive that. And know that because we were victorious over death, because we lived faithfully, we are going to get the crown of life. And we'll talk about that more in just a second as well in one of these other churches. But we're going to keep on moving to the next group, of course, and that's Pergamos. Uh, of course, Smyrna, uh, excuse me, Perg- or Smyrna here, this is them leveled as well, completely and absolutely desolate. The next one is in Pergamos. Please look with me in verses 12 to 17. That is where the church is located there. Uh, the Christians at Pergamum um, were faced with three distinct types of pagan religion. This is just one of the little, you know, they try to say this is what it looked like. Obviously, there's no absolute way of knowing that. But it was a very, very well-off city itself. But there were three types of pagan religion that Pergamum had coming in and out every day. Number one, it was called Popular Asiatic. Number two, it was called Culture Greek. And number three, there was the official Roman pagan religion that was coming in. And these brethren here had to dodge all three of these religions to remain faithful to the Lord. And you might look at me and say, Chase, that's easy. You know, every day I'm dodging the Baptists, the Catholics, the Christians, everybody that, that those denominations, I'm dodging them each and every day. But it's different. Because when they dodged these three religions, they were facing the fear of persecution. It was a constant for them. And this group just absolutely understood what it meant to be faithful. They knew the tribulation they would have to go through in order to remain faithful. Because all these different religions were coming in. And this group was also located about 30 miles north of Smyrna. But there's two things I want us to, lo- or, uh, to look at in verses 12 to 17. Notice in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. In verse 13 here, it says that they held fast his name. When I think of holding something fast, I'm reminded of the way my sister-in-law held her baby. He was premature, so when he was, when he was uh, born, um, they took him straight to the incubator, and he was in there for a little while. And when she finally got to hold that baby, she held him fast. And she was not going to let anything happen to him. She was very protective of him. And this is kind of what it means to hold fast the word, hold fast the Lord. They weren't going to let anything happen to it. How hard do we work to hold fast to the word of the Lord, as verse 13 is talking about? But notice verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have, excuse me, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So here he's it's talking about, the. Uh, of course, I couldn't come up with all this on my own. Uh, Homer Haley had a very good commentary on this. Uh, this is talking about the teaching of Balaam. Uh, he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, causing some to perish. Um, and then it's talking about to eat things sacrificed to idols. That involves simply not eating meat, as Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. 
And then the last thing he says, and, and to commit fornication or immorality. These three things share one thing in common, and that would be compromising for sin or winking at it. We cannot wink at sin as a local congregation. If there is a problem in a local church, it must be addressed. It cannot go unsolved and unlooked at. And I think today we have to be very wearisome of that. Sometimes it can be awkward to have to go and confront people living in sin. It can be very awkward, but it is something we are called to do as a local congregation, and we cannot wink at sin. We have to make sure we're doing everything that we can to live faithfully and call these people out as we're commanded to in the New Testament. Um, but that was the church at Pergamum. That these were the things that God or Jesus wanted to talk to him about. And, of course, here is a picture of the destruction of Pergamum, also absolutely leveled. The next church we go on to see is in Thyatira. Thyatira is in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. It's one of the larger sections of the seven churches. Uh, the other mention of Thyatira was actually Lydia in Acts 16, 11 through 15. It's a very interesting passage. If you can't read that, just uh, follow along with me as I read. It says, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Salmathras. And on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the distinct of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be the women, or excuse me, be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We see here that Thyatira was also known for their purple linens. Uh, as Acts 16, 11 through 15, we have this story of Lydia. I think it's a beautiful image of how a servant of God should be. It says that not only was she the seller of fabric, she was a worshiper of God. She was listening. And when she learned about the gospel, it says, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying she wanted them to stay with them. But it just goes to show that she wasn't going to stop at anything. She shared that good news with her family. And obviously, it doesn't make any mention of her children being infants. All of her family were of the age of accountability before, because all of them were baptized. And how wonderful that truly is. But as we go through about Thyatira, I'd imagine and hope that more people are like Lydia at the church in Thyatira. Here was Thyatira's destruction. We'll get to that in just a second. But I want us to notice three things from the church at Thyatira. The first one starts in verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The first thing I want us to notice is the confidence in the Lord's knowledge. Just like the Lord knows our hearts, and we'll talk about that in a second, He also knows the problems we face, but He also knows the deeds that we do. He commends them for the deeds that they're doing, but what are the deeds we're doing right now? Are they commendable? What, what, are they, what are they reflect about us as individuals? I just think that idea that God knows those deeds, is very, very comforting. The next thing I want us to see is in verses 20 to 23. Pick up with me there in verse 20. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality, 
and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. But notice verse 23. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I think it's very interesting here the language that he uses here. The Lord wants them to turn away from these things in verses 20 to 22. But verse 20, 23 says that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. You know, searching for something is much more than just merely looking. Searching means you're going digging and you're looking into as deep as you can go. And God is doing the same thing with our hearts as we sit right now. He is searching through our hearts, and as he's doing so, what is he going to find? Is he going to find nothing but immoral thoughts and impure thoughts and maybe things that aren't of this, or of this assembly? We're thinking of the things of the world. Or is he going to find us focusing on the assembly? Is he going to find us thinking on spiritual things at all times? Because the Lord is searching our hearts and our minds right now. We have to keep it on the forefront of our minds about what he's going to find. And the response that they give, that he gives to Thyatira in regards to that is interesting. Look at 24 and 25. He says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, why do you not hold his teaching? What have you known the deep, or why, who have you not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them? I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Again, there's that idea of holding fast. We must stay faithful unto death. And the world would have us to believe otherwise. The world would have us to believe Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 and other passages like that uh, don't really mean anything. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Uh, different things like that. That's not what we're taught. We are to be faithful unto death. We are to do everything we can to remain faithful to the Lord and go through great extremes in order to do that. And we need to make sure we're doing that. And we can learn a lot from the group there at Thyatira. The next group I want us to notice is Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6. Look at chapter 3, 1 through 6. This group would have lived in a very rich town in a, in a very good capital. Um, there are three things I want us to observe from this church in particular as well. Number one, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you were alive, but you were dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Number one, he tells them to do is to wake up. They may look alive, but they are dead. And as Christians, we get into this habit of looking nice and pretty spiritually, and we look all good as we walk through the buildings, but on the inside, we're, we're bad off. We're disgusting. We don't look good at all. We cannot stop. Sometimes Christians get to the age or sometimes uh, they've been a Christian for so long that they believe they know everything there is to know about the Bible. Ah, Chase, I already know all about baptism and I know, I know everything I need to know. I know all the basics. And uh, although we might not believe and think that way and that might not be what we're outwardly showing, it might be what's going on on the inside. And if you are in that situation or in that case, I would like to direct your attention to Galatians chapter 5. Um, go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Put your markers on Revelation, however. And we're going to spend just a moment in Galatians 5. We're going to talk on this idea of, I've already know everything I need to know, don't need to know anything else. 
Verses 19 to 21 is pretty interesting. If you would, uh, if you would look there for a second. We're not going to read verses 19 to 21. But we go to this verse a lot, right? Uh, it has the works of the flesh. We'd like to point out different sins we might be involved in or others might be involved in. And uh, it's, a, those are, it's a good set of verses to look at for that kind of thing. Because it does tell us directly that if we practice such things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Great list. We need to look at it. But we take it out of context sometimes. I think we just leave it there at verse 21. Look at verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verses 19 through 21, brethren, we call it the works of the flesh. But what does Paul say to them in verse 24? If you have been crucified, or if you have um, belonged to Christ, you have crucified those things of the flesh. Those are gone. And in verses 22 to 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, patience. And he gives us a list of all these kinds of things that we can work, work, work with. I don't know about you all. I have a lot of these things I need to work on. Every one of them are things I need to work on, and I'm going to have to work on for the rest of my life. But what's also interesting here. Uh, when I was going up through Bible class as a kid, we'd get five, and uh, the teacher would decorate the door, and she would have uh, the fruits of the spirit. You know, on an apple, she would have like goodness, and then on the on the orange, she'd have faithfulness, and uh, another one, you know, on the pear, she'd have self control. But look at verse twenty-two. It says, "But the fruit of the spirit." That's singular. In order to have the fruit of the spirit, we have to have all of those things. We can't just pick and choose which one of these we want to apply to our lives. We have to have each and every one of them in our lives. And we need to strive to do that. So if you're in the position where you think maybe you've learned all that you can, you can learn from, I don't think you can look at this list and tell me you're perfect in each and every one of these categories because there are many things we can all work on each and every day. And we need to make sure we're going to do that. We must grow in all of these things. And go, go ahead and turn back over to Revelation chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3. And uh, there's a couple more things I want us to notice at the church of Sardis. Revelation 3, look at verse 3. He says, So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Of course, this is something that we've heard a lot. Jesus not only uses it on multiple occasions through the Gospels, but Peter uses it in his epistle as well. This idea of, of uh, Jesus coming like a thief in the night. And of course, what this means is, if Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, if we knew when the thief was coming, we'd be ready. We would be ready to put up a fight or call the cops or whatever be it. But Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. We're not going to know when he's coming. Therefore, we need to be prepared always for him to come back. Verses 4 through 5, he says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Brethren, that's comforting. That's very, very comforting. The Lord will save the ones who are faithful. And I think about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram, they're trying to find out how many God would save. And I'd venture to say if he got down to one soul, he would have said he would have. But this is such a comforting fact. When we are baptized, 
it's very important for us to realize that our name is added to the book of life, but it's possible for it to be erased. And we have to think about that. We have to take serious note of that. Is our name erased from the book as we stand right now? But the book of life is a big thing for us to understand. And that idea, not only the book of life, but receiving the crown of life if we are faithful, this is all imagery for us to be faithful and remain faithful unto death. And this is what Jesus is trying to stretch across to these members at the church at Sardis. And, of course, Sardis as well. Here's a picture of their destruction there shortly after. Okay, and the next group is Philadelphia. Uh, it's the sixth group there that's talked about. It's about, um, I think, 30 to 40, yeah, 30 to 40 miles um, southwest of, um, of Sardis. And it's a very interesting group as well. Of course, Philadelphia meaning the brother of love. The, the story there was um, the king of Philadelphia, or the guy that was over the province there, actually had a brother that he loved so much that he named the city Philadelphia because he loved that brother so much. I just think that's very interesting. But it's also a wealthy trade center, um, like some of the other churches we looked at. But without going too, far, or too much farther into the history, there's two things I want us to notice from this group as well. Look at verse 7. Um, excuse me, look at verse 10 at the church at Philadelphia. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come up upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. The first thing we can notice from this verse is that the Lord is faithful to His promise. The gospel meeting I got to recently preach in Michigan, the entire meeting was on God's promises, starting in Galatians chapter, or excuse me, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-3, through 3, and we see the promises of Abraham there, and that those were all fulfilled in the Old Testament, but God had a plan for us. As Galatians 3.29 says, we were all heirs according to promise through Abraham, and that we can all have that hope. How comforting is it to know that God's going to keep His promises, and it's always going to be kept. And one of the biggest things I talked about was if we think He broke one of His promises in the Bible, there's two things we need to consider. Number one, the context, and number two, the contingency. The contingency, God, we have to hold up to our end of the deal if we expect God to hold up to his. We have to be faithful unto death to get what? The crown of life. That's how that works. And we need to understand that. It's, it's not just something that we're going to get no matter how we act. We have to hold up to our end of the deal as well. But there's comfort in the fact that God is consistent in that. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. The important thing is that, that's here is that someone can take your crown. We need to be aware of that. And just like our name can get erased out of the book of life, our crown can get taken. And we need to be aware of that and be careful. Excuse me. There we go. And here is the destruction of Philadelphia. It was absolutely leveled as well. All right, and the next group we see is in, uh, is in um, Laodicea. It's also a little bit further south. Of, um, uh, of Philadelphia, and it's a very interesting group as well. This is where we get the imagery and the language of uh, being lukewarm or hot or cold. Go ahead and look with me, starting in verse 14 of Revelation 3. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know what you are, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I think it's very important that we understand the language that he's using here. The church here is neither hot nor cold. That is the worst way to be. Where is our congregation as it sits? We need to do some real self-evaluation on whether we're either a hot or cold or lukewarm congregation. And in a church with no elders, I think that's important that you all have the frequent business meetings like I know you all have. And I think that's great because we have to have that self-evaluation as congregations to see where we fit in this category. But notice verse 18 as well. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I self to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. He is encouraging them to repent and, and to be more zealous. But these churches of Asia, in conclusion, are very, very interesting, I think. It doesn't tell us that there is a hierarchy of elders in these churches. We don't see one group of elders lording over another group of elders like the Catholic Church has it. We don't see uh, one church withdrawing from another church, but we do see individuals in the New Testament, or uh, a church withdrawing from individuals, and we see the setup of the church and how beautiful that is. But the biggest thing we can take away from this is one thing I, I skipped over, you all were probably wondering why, is what he tells them at the end of each letter. Start with me in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea was absolutely leveled. And that's why I want to conclude with this. The church are people, and people have problems. What will we do to fix those problems? Brethren, if there's, if there's a problem in a congregation, the first and foremost thing we need to do is look at ourselves. See we're the problem in that local group and see what we need to do in order to fix those. Uh, perhaps in your, you're in the audience now and your name has been added to the book of life and it has been erased. Uh, perhaps you are not living a life that needs to be uh, that of a Christian and you're not working towards the fruit of the Spirit and you're not living a life for God and your, book, and your name has been erased out of the book. And maybe you're not a Christian and your book has never, or your name has never been added to that book and you're in a boat where you don't have salvation. You're in a boat that's going the wrong way. Salvation can be achieved through hearing the word as is talked about in Romans 10, 17. Believing that word, Hebrews eleven six, 6, repenting of those sins as Acts 2, 38 talks about, doing a 180 degree turn, putting on the new self, taking off the old as Colossians 3 talks about, confessing before man that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and your sins before men, Romans 10, 10, be baptized, Mark 16, 16. But the one we cannot forget, continue steadfast. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and another verse I used to put in this PowerPoint as well is Revelations 2, 10. We must be faithful until death. Will you hear the words that the Spirit spoke to the churches in Asia? Will you make things right with the Lord if you need to this hour? If we can help you anyway, won't you come now as we stand and sing?